The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Have you ever raised money for a cause online? Have you ever donated to a crowdfunding campaign or a fundraising platform? If so, you've participated in the online fundraising sector. While online fundraising has undoubtedly been of huge benefit to charities, exposing their brand and their work to a global audience and raising enormous amounts of money in the process, it's a bit of a murky ethical area. What responsibility do fundraising platforms hold when it comes to whether or not to host a charity or a personal fundraiser? Is it enough for a charity to be legally registered or do fundraising platforms have an obligation to take a position on the ethics or the validity of a cause? What about personal fundraisers? How do we regulate who can fundraise, for what and where the money will go? What about in cases of hate speech, for example? What about Celeste Barber, the Australian comedian's $51 million bushfire fundraising campaign that ended up in court? I invited the founder and managing director of My Cause, Australia's first online fundraising platform, to chat with me about these issues. Tanya Burston started My Cause after noticing a gap in the market for donation sponsorship. My Cause has now grown to have over 6,500 charity partners and has raised more than 140 million Australian dollars for community groups, charities and individuals here in Australia. Tanya was named in the Female Fintech Founders Project as a fintech entrepreneur in 2018 and a Monash Global Fellow in 2019. She's a thought leader in the crowdfunding community and regularly commentates on charitable fundraising in Australia. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Tanya. Thank you. It's lovely to have you with us today. I want to start off by asking you something I ask all of my guests. What does doing good mean to you personally? Doing good means helping others to me. I think it means doing something genuine. To me, it means genuinely trying to help people. And I do that professionally, but I also do it personally. And personally, it's doing things that, you know, are not made public. People don't know about them necessarily, but it's uh, trying to help uh, those close to me and in my community. I think that it's really important to sort of start in your immediate circle, in your crowd, really, and see how you can help. In my case, that's uh, with family and close friends. Where do you think your motivation to help others comes from? I never ever really understood that I was motivated to do that, but I think that that is innate in me a little, and I think it comes from both my parents. Um, my mum was very involved in uh, charity. It was kind of typical of that era, though, because she worked inside the home and then she did a lot of sort of charity work. So I, I picked up on that just innately. And my dad is a businessman, so I very have been really lucky to kind of merge those two things kind of by accident. You bought online fundraising to the Australian market way back in 2007. What motivated you to start my cause? Well, I was trying to solve a problem, to be honest. I didn't really understand what I was starting at the time. And this was long before there was anything like the terminology side hustle or the terminology crowdfunding. None of that actually existed. Those words were not in the lexicon at all. So I was uh, actually volunteering for a fundraising event. It was a, a run around Albert Park and it was a big relay and the, the people running ran all through the night. And when they finished that fantastic endeavour, it was really hard to collect the money and to find where all the donations were even though people had promised to support the event 
And I thought there's got to be a better way. So I did a little bit of research and saw what was going on in the UK where they had this thing called online fundraising where you could create an online page and share it with your friends and family. The fact that you had that online page and the fact that you could share it. And, of course, you know, this is a really the beginning of Facebook as well and that people could click to donate and be immediately receded was quite groundbreaking. It didn't exist. It did not exist at all in Australia. So when I started here and I went to knock on the doors of uh, charities and say, hey, look, got this great idea you can have a fun run event and everyone can create an online page they seriously looked at me like I had horns coming out of the side of my head <laughs> so we signed up one charity and then they told their friends and we signed up three and then we signed up six and then we signed up 12 and then it gained a bit of momentum from them yeah amazing now these days there are lots and lots of online fundraising platforms can you walk us through some of the different models that are used by different platforms? So crowdfunding is actually used by a lot of or a lot of platforms for products. So the original word crowdfunding came from your Kickstarters and Indiegogos where people would like sort of test a product and they would uh, take that product to market and you could buy that product early by making a so-called donation or payment and then you receive that product or you received incentives and prizes and that product off the ground. From that came donation fundraising and crowdfunding and there's platforms in Australia that specialise only in charities. There's platforms um, that specialise only in personal causes so that's where somebody can raise money for another person or a project and we do both at my cause and then there's a whole lot of um, platforms that are quite uh, country specific and culturally specific so you'll find now that every country will have their main personal cause crowdfunding platform or platforms and then there'll be multiple ways that people fundraise for charity online as well. In the charity space the the beauty of this model has meant that charities can now reach people all over the world uh, very easily and they've got a much bigger market from which to draw fundraising from. We know that causes can go viral or projects that are being fundraised for can go viral. But while this is, of course, a positive for the sector, it also raises some really tricky ethical issues. One of those in particular is the responsibility of platforms to vet the charities that fundraise on their platforms. And there's questions that are raised around whose responsibility it is to look at the effectiveness of the charity and its interventions, but also whether it is an ethical cause or an intervention. What are your thoughts on this? Look, as far as charities go, we try not to make a judgment. What we do is we say, are you a registered Australian charity? Are you vetted and regulated by the ACNC, which stands for the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, which, by the way, did not exist when I started the business. The ACNC has only been around for, oh, gosh, I think six years or so, So, it, and which is a fantastic government entity that regulate now regulates the charities on a national level. Uh, by the way, after it launched, after a couple of years, the government did actually try to take it down for political reasons, but luckily it's still going. It's really found its feet and it's just an accepted part of the regulatory landscape now. So what we do is we check, you know, we check all of your bona fides, including your listing with the ACNC. That's where we stop because it's not for us to judge whether a charity is ethical or not ethical. That's really up to the donor to judge. And um, if you are licensed and you're up to date with all of your regulatory requirements, that's actually all we need. We're not going to make a judgment call because everyone has their reasons to donate to different organisations. Conversely, if you're fundraising for a personal cause, that's completely different. I want to stick with the charities for a second. Obviously, you know, I've got a, an advocacy background in um, orphanages, being the founder of the co-founder of Rethink Orphanages. And I've had a lot of conversations with crowdfunding and online fundraising platforms about the ethical responsibility behind that decision-making process on whether or not to host fundraisers for orphanages or orphanages that are fundraising on their platform. I had a, a conversation with a large US-based platform recently who felt that they had no responsibility for vetting the effectiveness of the charity 
or whether it was an ethical project, like you say, if, if an entity is registered and, you know, is legally able to operate, then the position is that we're, we're not going to impose our restrictions on that. But where I think it gets really tricky, and I guess that's what this podcast is all about, is if a project or a type of intervention is unethical and there's evidence to prove that it's actually harming people, then is it enough to say, well, you're, you're legally able to be registered and we're not going to have any position on that? Do you not think that there's a role there, you know, for, for these platforms that might be perpetuating this idea that orphanages are a good thing and that you should donate to them and that you should fundraise for them? When I'm hearing you and I'm sort of thinking, you know, I don't want anybody to fundraise for an organisation that's listed and, and, you know, registered and is fundraising for an orphanage, if I apply my personal ethics, that means I have to apply my personal ethics everywhere. So what happens for an organisation perhaps that is anti-abortion? So, uh, but they're registered and they're an official or legal charity and, and also vice versa because we have actually both on the platform. So there's one side of that debate that I personally don't agree with strongly, actually, but a company doesn't have ethics. People have ethics, right? So the company has to has to adopt the ethics of whomever is, is, is part of that company. And so that would be us as an organisation deciding on these ethics. So I think we should do that and we're obligated to do that in many circumstances, but I would be really concerned about doing it for for organised charities because they could very well just say, well, but hold on, who are you to say that we're good, bad or ugly? Even though ethically I might be opposed to orphanage trade after being educated by yourself, so thank you for that, And but also other things that I'm personally, you know, not aligned with. So I think it's actually a really, really difficult question. It is, and it's it's a grey area. I mean, you know, we were involved in the modern slavery inquiry as Rethink Orphanages a couple of years back, and, you know, the push was to have orphanage trafficking listed as a form of modern slavery, which would by default then start to look at um, whether fundraising for orphanages overseas was in fact being complicit in in modern slavery. And we worked closely with the ACNC on this. And I think, you know, eventually we will progress to a point where it is not, uh, it is not possible to register as an orphanage and fundraise for an orphanage. At least that's my great hope. But in the meantime, is the resistance fear of being involved in a legal challenge, for example. And I know you've got some stuff to say about that as as somebody that's running a platform where there's a lot of emotion in causes. People have strong opinions uh, and, like you say, their own personal ethics. Mm. So we do have um, terms and conditions and guidelines around fundraising, for example, but it's not really about the entity for whom you're fundraising, it's more about what you're doing. And that we can certainly police. So that would be if you're doing anything, you know, with guns or if you're saying that you're going to get completely blind drunk for charity ABC, things like that we would say are not are not ethical activities to fundraise for a charity. So I think that that's really inside our remit. To your point, though, about the orphanages or those charities supporting them, it's quite hard for a charity that's doing work overseas to get listed as a DGR in Australia already as it is. So hopefully if the government inserts those sort of guidelines that you're suggesting, they'll either lose their uh, status or it will be harder for them to list. But what we find on my cause is most of the fundraising for going overseas is what we call personal cause fundraising. So that's where people will fundraise for a project or a trip or something. So it might be I'm fundraising to go to Thailand to visit or Cambodia to visit all of these orphanages because I've been donating to them or because it's of interest to me and other like sorts of activities. So I think that's where we can come in and we can have ethics and guidelines and we can help with a big education piece. So the education piece can be around, are you aware that this sort of travel is harmful? Here's the reasons why. Here's the links to the website. And because our guidelines that are written and here they are, here's the link to them. We're not going to allow this sort of fundraising. I think we're well within our rights to do that, but I think we would struggle. 
with the charity. Yeah, definitely. I think when you've got an extra regulatory framework that's kind of sitting over you and, you know, there's no legal basis for you to refuse that charity and their their projects, then you're right. It's it's very difficult to take that position. We have had some trouble with this in the past. Um, in fact, um, some of our our personal guidelines, our ethics are around um, discrimination and um, hate politics and hate speech and so forth. But one man's hate speech is another man's politics, right? One man's discrimination is another man's you know uh, regular speech um, and so when we've banned um, political fundraising for politicians that we believe are engaged in that sort of activity um, that's actually come back to bite us and people have been saying that you're discriminating against us we've also got ob- obligations not to discriminate so we have to be really careful around that but at the same time we also have obligations not to promote hate speech to not have a platform that is unsafe or discriminates against any other um, group so how do you navigate it? Yeah, well, you know what, it's tricky, but I think that we have to stick to our core guidelines and they're written and they're uh, available and they're transparent. And at the end of the day, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. <laughs> what about in situations where people are fundraising for um, personal causes and they don't give that money to where they say it's they're, they're fundraising it for? What happens there? Look, really good question and really can and does happen frequently. Well, not frequently, but can and does happen. So what where we come in as a platform, we can't, we can't play God and we can't see what you're doing with that money. It is a buyer beware situation. When you donate to a personal cause, you don't have any comeback. You don't have, you know, the regulation of the ACNC. So you want to make sure when you're donating to a personal cause that you know and trust the person to whom you're donating. Usually that is a friend or family member or a friend of a friend. Like in general, there's not that many causes that go viral and they're on TV and you don't know them. If they are though, they'll be extra betting. So let's say um, you see a cause that um, speaks to you and you want to help them out. The first thing you check is where are the funds being banked? And on our fundraising pages, you can actually see to whom the funds are being banked. So your bank account name is exposed. So for example, you, you might really want to donate to this particular person who perhaps is unfortunately unwell, but you realise that the funds are being banked to the sister-in-law and perhaps you know that the sister-in-law has a drug problem so you don't really trust that. So then you have to take the approach with, I'm not going to donate. It's a buyer beware. If you don't feel that that's safe for you, then don't donate. What we try to do here is we try to ensure all the time that the funds are being banked directly to the beneficiary, not via a third party. It's not always completely possible, but we try to make that happen. What about um, situations where somebody's fundraising for themselves fraudulently? And I know we've we've certainly had very high profile cases here in Australia of people pretending that they have a terminal illness and in fact not having a terminal illness. Yeah, look, that is just a really sad and unfortunate situation, isn't it? When somebody pretends to be sick because they're actually duping the people that are closest to them. So when you set up a cause and you're you're faking that, the people that you are lying to are your best friends, your social media um, friends, uh, your classmates, your colleagues. So you're really embedded in a lie. And that's the same as if that lie were offline. That is exactly the same as if they came up to you at work and said, you know, oh, we're having a morning tea at work and it's cash only because so-and-so has cancer and it's all a lie. It's the same thing as a donating online. So that person will get found out eventually and they will be charged with fraud and the police will become involved and we have a couple of cases pending that we know are going on at the moment but it's actually it's a really sad i feel really sorry for those people that they feel that they need to do this it's really sad and it's sad for their friends because their friends have been deceived and in general with these causes you'll find it is the the more immediate networks that are affected that are affected it's not so usual for people that you don't know to give to these causes so you touched on regulation before. Is there any actual regulation in this space from a government perspective? Oh, have you got a few hours? Um, <laughs> okay, let's open that can of worms. So the regulations have been written with charities in mind and the regulations have been written before online 
fundraising existed or was thought of. So that's the first thing. Right now, there's a big push and a lot of activity going on to fix the regulations for charities, charities as fundraisers. So that's a really good thing. I've been uh, quite involved in advocating for this, which is called the Fixed Fundraising um, Campaign. But unfortunately, what is not happening is them also fixing the regulations to take care of personal cause fundraising. What I'm advocating for is don't worry about who the beneficiary is. It doesn't matter if it's a charity or it's a personal cause. All fundraising has to be done ethically and lawfully and you have to not mislead and so on and so forth. So we would like that to come under the trade practices um, uh, principles, which is the same for when you're buying goods. You can't mislead, you can't say they do something they don't do, all of that sort of thing. And then if you do that, you're subject to the, the discipline reaction and so on and so forth and fraud and everything else. So at the moment, the regulations don't work. Uh, they're confusing, they're confused. And even the people that have to implement those regulations, so from all of the consumer affairs departments across every state, don't really understand how to activate their own regulations. They don't know what does and doesn't apply. And here's the kicker. If they, in fact, apply, they don't apply to any overseas organisations. Therefore, GoFundMe is not subject to any regulation because they're not in Australia, which, of course, is nonsensical. So by that, you could have a fundraising page for somebody that raises $50,000 on GoFundMe that's not regulated, but a fundraising page on my cause that raises $50,000 that is regulated. But how it's regulated is a whole question. Depends what state you're in um, and uh, depends what the state consumer affairs says. Why do people choose, for example, GoFundMe uh, over a national platform like your own is is it the the consumer has no kind of not knowledge but there's there's no effect there's no flow-on effect to the consumer right if they choose an overseas hosted platform versus an Australian hosted platform there's no difference yeah there's no difference to the consumer and look they are like a global behemoth uh they want to be the fundraising layer of the internet is uh, what Rob, the CEO, has been quoted as saying, the fundraising layer of the internet. The, their biggest competitor is Facebook. So Facebook and GoFundMe go head-to-head. -head. They've also actually both moved into the charity space, of course, where you can fundraise for a charity on either of those two platforms, both of which are really detrimental to the charities uh, for a number of reasons, including the flow of the data. Um, and all of their donations go through the PayPal giving fund. So you've got three massive organisations here working together. You've got GoFundMe, you've got Facebook, and you've got PayPal all kind of working together uh, here. But, Look, they, they're, they're a global brand, they're a global organisation and uh, because of that they have a lot, of, a lot of money and a lot of traffic and a lot of ability to do enormous marketing, which means much like Kleenex, uh, people don't say crowdfunding, they say a GoFundMe page. Yeah, yeah, it's true, isn't it? And I think, you know, those partnerships and those connections, you know, with Facebook and with PayPal, I think a lot of people don't realize those integrations and therefore the the level of power that these organizations hold uh, and leverage over charities and the amount of money that they make from the charitable sector as well. Well, unfortunately, us and all charities have to advertise on uh, Facebook and those sorts of platforms. So, uh, that's actually where they make the money from the charities. They don't charge any fees on their charity fundraising, so we can't uh, we can't we can't hold that against them. But they also don't pass on the donor data. Uh, actually, interestingly, some of the very big campaigns that you'd be aware of in Australia for disasters, of course, have used Facebook fundraising or GoFundMe fundraising. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. This year in Australia, what actually seems like a lifetime ago now, but was, you know, only nine months ago, we had devastating bushfires. And the effects of those fires touched many people in Australia and also overseas. And that resulted in a massive surge of donations to lots of different organisations working on response and recovery. When a crisis or disaster happens, what do you see uh, as a fundraising platform, what happens? 
Well, we get very busy for a start. Um, our team, uh, we had to call back our entire team from holidays over the bushfire season. That's how busy we were. So we facilitated a lot of fundraising for Australian charities and personal causes. Uh, so the charity fundraising might include anything from um, wildlife charities through to welfare organisations, uh, through to you know emergency services organisations. And the personal cause fundraising might be anything from you know people's projects such as uh, My House Burnt Down uh, through to what people would think are charities but are not like uh you know like wildlife rescue a lot of those wildlife rescues are quite small organizations so they have to come under the personal cause banner they're not listed charities or the good one which we love which of course we we do shut down is um i'm fundraising for everybody that's been affected by the fires <laughs> you know uh, so who's the beneficiary uh everybody <laughs> so <laughs> that's where our our vetting comes in and that's our work and a lot of our work is is we vet every single cause so you can imagine how busy it would be during a disaster with multiple people and what these people are doing by the way is they're just expressing how upset they are about this disaster and they want to help so the first thing we do is we send them a, a message we say look it's great that you want to help Fantastic. You, it looks like you're located in New South Wales. Perhaps you might consider choosing one of these charities and we might list a couple of charities. So, you know, if they're talking about wildlife, we might list a couple of wildlife charities for them. Or if they're talking about, you know, disaster services, we might uh, list a couple of disaster services for them. But we won't let them go ahead and fundraise for some unknown beneficiary because, well, firstly, no one's going to donate to them. That's actually the truth of the matter. But let's say somebody is silly enough to donate to them. We don't, that money's just going to go into their bank account. Out and what does that mean? I'm donating to everybody or I'm donating to the fire. It means nothing. When we spoke the other day on a phone call, you were telling me about a particular cause that got a lot of attention uh, in the bushfires, a wildlife rescue, I think it was, and a whole lot of money went flowing to them or was being raised for them. And I think you said you realised that they weren't actually a registered charity. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's not atypical for wildlife rescues not to be registered charities because often they're quite small and grassroots and, you know, that sort of thing. So there was a, people really wanted to fundraise for koalas. That became a really big deal and you would have seen all of the pictures on the news of the fireys, you know, giving water to the koalas and so on. So that that created a, a lot of activity of people wanting to fundraise for koala sanctuaries. But people were choosing or creating organisations that actually weren't really organisations or they're really small wildlife organisations. Some of them received a lot of funding, which was way too much, in my opinion, for that organisation to be able to cope with. Because, you know, you're looking at, say, an organisation that raises $100,000 and all of a sudden they're getting millions of dollars. These organisations... I don't have the capacity to manage those sort of funds, you know, let alone people understanding where that money's going. What are they going to exactly do with those millions of dollars? Are they going to build more enclosures? Are they going to on forward those funds? Uh, you know, how are they really going to use that money or is that going to keep them going for the next 100 years? Charities are registered whether they're tax deductible or not tax deductible on the ACNC and a lot of these are not tax deductible because they're small. But I think it's important to do your due diligence. Which koala charity are you donating? to what is their capacity where are they located what's their board i don't imagine though that um that small wildlife shelter that's almost you know that's all of a sudden got a million dollars on the screen saying is coming to them reacts very well to being told that hey it's possibly not okay that this comes to you what happens there well i mean the money is legitimately for them uh, so I think it's around sort of educating the donors and the fundraisers and we we can intervene here. So, for example, when people might choose a particular charity, we can suggest to them that they might consider another one. Uh, sometimes that might be a larger one or, or one that's broader and is perhaps helping more broad wildlife sectors, you know, that has more capacity on the ground and that sort of thing. At the end of the day, if somebody wants to fundraise and or donate to a particular organisation, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And actually this actually dovetails nicely doesn't it with the orphanages because you know if you want to donate to that organization sort of same thing but we can assist with uh, education and we communicate a lot with our fundraisers and donors so 
Look, it would be remiss not to discuss the Australian comedian Celeste Barber's bushfire campaign, which was conducted on Facebook and raised over $51 million for the Royal New South Wales Fire Service. Celeste was raising funds, as she said, to support people and animals affected by the bushfires in the states of New South Wales and Victoria. However, from a legal perspective, it turned out that that was not actually the case. Can you walk us through what happened there? Look, this was a groundbreaking fundraising campaign and it's actually the biggest fundraising campaign in Australia. So it's amazing. But what's happened is she's felt that there was a need. She had uh, some personal connection uh, around the bushfires uh, I think family living in uh, south coast of New South Wales. Um, so she decided to start a fundraising campaign. She went onto Facebook, she clicked and chose the organisation known as the Royal Fire Services Donation Fund, which is a donation fund. Uh, it, it's not the um, state organisation, it's kind of their donation fund, but it's related to them, it's their donation fund. It's about a million dollars a year charity, that's, that's about what they make. So she chose them and everything's fine. Uh, when she's when she's raised three hundred thousand dollars, but then of course it takes on a life of its own. Uh, she starts uh, messaging it out to well-known people, and you know they all these famous people start donating, and it, it, it takes on a life of its own and gets really big. In the meantime, people start messaging her both privately and publicly, saying, "Hey, do you realise you've actually chosen the Rural Fire Service, and the funds are going there, and not anyone anywhere else?" She keeps going on record saying, oh, the funds are going for wildlife, the funds are going to Victoria, the funds are going here, I really want to help there, I want to help, um, uh, unfortunately, the, the firefighters have passed away and their families and so on. All of the while, a cohort of people knew that this was impossible. It was never going to happen because when you choose the organisation, that's where the funds are going to, although there's a caveat on that, which I'll explain in a minute. So... What she's done, though, is everything that she was saying publicly on her social media was actually not meeting the reality of what was going on. So the problem was not that she chose Royal Fire Service. The problem was she was saying something that actually wasn't true, probably not because she meant to do it harmfully in any way, but it actually just was not true. So she was misleading people because... People, when they clicked to donate, although they saw it was a Royal File Service, perhaps they didn't understand. And particularly if you're from overseas. So imagine if you're German and you're looking at these fires, you go, oh, I want to donate and I know Celeste Barber and so I'm going to donate. They don't know the ins and outs of how charities work in Australia. They don't know that Royal Fire Service means what we know it to mean. They might think it means a general fund to help in disasters like the national Australian funds that we that the government actually set up. So... You can blame some donors who should know better, but many donors, you can't blame them. What do they know? Really? Fair enough. So you've got to, as a public figure, be really careful about what you're saying. And especially if you're getting advice from people saying, no, you're actually saying the wrong thing, then stop saying it. So remember we talked about the PayPal Giving Fund. So everybody that donated on Facebook actually donated to the PayPal Giving Fund. Their receipt was receipted on the ABN of the PayPal Giving Fund, which is a public ancillary fund. Public ancillary funds must donate all of their money to a DGR charity. That's what they're for. They're kind of or entities that don't actually have their own charitable purpose, but they have a tax status and they have to disperse to other charities. At that point in time, everything could have been fixed because the PayPal Giving Fund, in conjunction with Celeste and her people, could have said, okay, there's been argy-bargy, we've raised an unbelievable amount of money. We did select Rural Fire Service, but seeing as it's sitting in this giving fund that has trustees that are allowed to disperse to any DGR charity at their discretion, that's what it says because that's what it says in all packs, they could have decided at that point in time to send it to whatever, Victoria Wildlife here and there. But they didn't. PayPal Giving Fund basically said, we don't want part of this problem because we know what's going on. And they shifted the money to the fire service. Once the fire service had received that money, they were unable to disperse it forward. And also, why would they? Of course, they're not going to do that, right? But they couldn't anyway, because every charity has a D's that says it has to spend the money on its objects. And that's a good thing 
And I've been on the record, I was on TV saying, this is actually the system working as it should. You don't want a charity to take the money and say, you know what, actually, we're going to do this with it, we're going to do that with it, it's not part of our objects. I don't want to donate to a cancer charity and then, and then they go ahead and say, actually, we've decided we're going to do some research on motor neuron disease. Well, no, because then I donate to them. So it's the right thing for a charity to only be able to spend their money according to their objects and purposes. That's the system working as it should. And that's when that what they went to court to try to change that and were unable to. What happens now to that money? I mean, obviously the RFS has that money. Does that money sit with them and fund the next 50 years of their, of their work? You know, has there been any movement inside the RFS as to how that will be spent? There was one small part of the judgment that did allow them to um, help the families of fire service people in New South Wales. Um, so that's one good thing. So hopefully that money will, will help them. But they'll buy trucks and they'll buy boots and things like that. So arguably, as a donor, I would prefer the government pay for fire truck And boots and boots and I would prefer my funds to go elsewhere like more directly into the local community so an example of what we did when I was saying that we advocate for organizations is when these fires were going and and it was a very very intense time for the country and for us at work we sought out these smaller organizations and one case in point would be um the Gippsland Emergency Relief Fund we found them we took them and we recommended them to people and we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for them and people wouldn't have known. I mean, they did that themselves as well, so it's not just us, of course, but we recommended them to people who were looking for local organisations. So we were able to kind of advocate and push money into these local areas as well. So sometimes we will spend hours on the phone finding your local SES for you so that you can get the funds there directly, which is which can be a little bit complicated. What does all this say about both the power and responsibility of celebrity when it comes to fundraising? It says a lot, doesn't it? I think it says a lot about the power. I mean, $51 million. Uh, it says a lot about the reach because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about reach. Um, but it also says a lot about responsibility, like be careful what you say, you know, if you don't know the information, and of course she's come out and said, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a comedian, you know, don't harass me. Fair enough, but you also have access to lawyers or you have access to people with information and you can do some of your due diligence. And it's not that hard to do that due diligence, by the way. It's all there. I think it just got all a bit exciting. It all happened very, very quickly, but I think also a bit of listening wouldn't go astray. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think that within the celebrity world, there's a big desire to help and to use that power and that platform to help out on causes, particularly in a crisis or a disaster. But too often it's very, you know, heart driven in the moment. I, I want to do this and I can help with not enough, as you say, due diligence on what it is that you're actually supporting and, and throwing that weight of your celebrity behind that's right so you want to be researching that koala charity as well you want to be actually knowing where your money's going or if it's going to your local emergency relief in, in a particular town perhaps a fire affected town you just want to cross check that you're happy with the board and all that yes they might be a registered charity so all that's sorted well that's the first thing you check by the way are they a registered charity is there um, paperwork up to date at the ACNC? That's all public knowledge. It's, a, it's just a quick Google search. It's all available to any member of the public. That's the first thing you do. So let's say that that's all in order and one would assume it is. And then the next thing is, am I happy with these people? Am I happy with the board? There's a lot of organisations that are, have been started by a really well-meaning person. They're run by a volunteer board. You know, you want to you be a bit circumspect, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Tanya, what is it about your work that you're most naturally drawn to? I love problem solving. I think that's my key strength is being a problem solver. The business started out of solving a problem and uh, we do a lot of kind of technical work here trying to solve problems and hopefully the users of the platform don't really even know or see that. So we're trying to always be one step ahead of the uh, of our um, users and our fundraisers and our donors and provide them with a great experience and provide them with all of the tools that they need to help raise money for their favourite causes. And doing all that takes 
you know, a lot of thinking, a lot of work. And we love getting the feedback actually from all of our clients because all of that feedback informs all of the work we're doing and the new features and the new ways to make it easier and to keep up in this ever-changing world. I mean, things move so quickly in the world of uh, online and technology and something that was that we did 10 years ago is obviously, you know, virtually obsolete now. We don't want to be the Kodak of cameras. <laughs> what do you find most challenging about your work? It's a challenging space because it's very competitive. Uh, it's competitive with some of those platforms I mentioned earlier who are obviously massive global organisations. Um, it's competitive with a lot of Australian companies that are in the charitable space particularly. You're running a business as well as the whole side of doing good and loving the work and, you know, being so exciting to wake up in the morning and get your get my daily, I get a daily report every morning at 5am, which shows me all of our sort of top causes and I can see what all of our, you know, top 20 fundraisers are doing for charities or for personal causes. So there's not a morning that I don't smile, that I think, oh, wow, this is just amazing. Whether it's, you know, fundraising for a little boy that has Duchenne's muscular dystrophy so his family can get an appropriate vehicle to drive him around, or whether it's fundraising for the disaster in Beirut, or whether it's fundraising for, you know, all of these great charities providing, you know, services in mental health and welfare and so on. So there's not a day goes by that it's not fabulously exciting and a privilege. Honestly, a privilege to be doing this work. I feel so lucky. Who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good? I don't know. I think that actually when I look at myself and, in fact, I look at my siblings as well, we all kind of were born with that doing good gene. My sister is a a medical specialist working in the front line, actually, of the COVID response right now, doing amazing things. She was meant to have a uh, a sabbatical this year and, of course, had to give it up because uh, she's been very involved in the COVID response. And people like that, like my sister and those other frontline workers are doing amazing things, doing good. So, you know, she's really inspirational. And uh, my brother similarly um, does amazing things in his local community. So I think that it's just something that I've always done. And honestly, I don't even think it's special. It's not special. It's just, it just is. Next one is a philosophical question. First put out by a, a person called Kwame Apaya. And it asks, what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And that would mean something that future generations will look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. I think the greatest challenge of our time right now is what is truth. And I think you used to know back in the day what was true and what was potentially not true. I mean, you had your opinions And people are entitled to them. But I think these days there is so much lies, so much rubbish um, that is so accessible on social media and it is so blurry between what is truth. And when you have, you know, the President of the United States just generally speaking untruths, you know, as though they were real, I'm scared. I'm scared for the polarisation of views as well. It used to be the day when you could sort of meet in the middle and I think that everything's getting so polarised nowadays between left and right and if you don't agree on one side or the other then you're a liar or or it's fake news or something like that. Um, I think that where we are right now with our dependence on social media uh, and you were asking me about regulation in the fundraising space. I mean, let's talk about regulation. There's no regulation around the news and how that news and how information is fed. So people are getting information inside their own fishbowl, right, inside their own bubble. So you're following feeds and you're getting fed information aligned with your views, left, right, middle, whatever. And over time, the information you're getting fed is moving further right or further left without you even understanding that it's happening. It's imperceptible shifts and you're getting fed all of that information and you're not hearing often the other side because you're inside your own bubble, you know. I think that that's really frightening, that the homogenisation of views, the take climate change, for example. There's one thing to say, I don't agree with the science or but to say I don't believe or it's fake, I just don't understand that as an argument. It's fascinating also as a, a parent of, you know, young children that are starting to 
you know, have more freedom and exploration of the internet and how they perceive initially with my son in particular, I'm thinking about where, you know, we had to have a a number of conversations that every website that you go to and everything that you read or watch or consume on the internet isn't true. You know, there was just a, a very, it was interesting that he had an expectation that things were true, that, that things that were being shown to him or he was consuming were true. And I think that's a really difficult skill for people to learn is how to interpret and think critically about what they are consuming and particularly for kids. Well, I don't think a lot of na- adults have nailed it. So No, no. <laughs> and so therefore how hard is it for, for children who are you know, trying to grow up and navigate a world of so much information, more information than we've ever had before, and to decipher that and form opinions. And yeah, it's it's scary. Yeah, and when role models and adults who should know better are, you know, peddling false information on purpose as a as a tactic. Yeah. And people in leadership roles are doing that. What does that say to children? Tell me about someone who you admire, someone who you think is doing a lot of good in the world. I think somebody like Mike Cannon-Brooks is really amazing. He's the founder of Atlassian, uh, which is uh, one of Australia's greatest uh, tech success stories. He doesn't need my promotion. He does well for himself. In fact, we use all of Atlassian's tools here in the office. So seeing him sort of come out and stand up for what he believes in and stand up for causes and put his money behind those causes and be prepared to speak frankly, you know, not double speak um, about things like climate change and other things like that and supporting organisations I think is really fantastic, sort of really representing the next generation and being sort of outside of the whole political class. So I think, you know, money begets power, doesn't it? And power uh, affords a platform. So it's great to see uh, some people using that power for good. Um, I'm sure, look, a lot of people use their power for good and a lot of successful people are amazing philanthropists. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily into advocacy. So they won't be going ahead and putting forward their personal views and so on and so forth, but they might be funding organisations that they believe in and so quietly from the background doing things like that. The difference with him, I think, is that he's very uh, very vocal and um, and I think that there's a place for that because like we were saying, like your son, you have to follow someone, you have to look up to someone, you have to believe in someone. So that's why I believe quite strongly, actually, that major large philanthropists should be public and not anonymous. I think it's really important for them to set an example. And I've actually had this conversation with some major philanthropists that I know who choose to be anonymous. And I've said that to them. I said, I think you need to go public. It's not about your pride or I I understand that it's kind of nice in a way that you want to be anonymous you don't want to be boastful but the other way to look at it is you're showing leadership and people will follow you absolutely tanya where is your favorite place on earth favorite place on earth is wherever the family is to be honest and i think that that's what covid has taught us i do love travel and i do love travel with my bike i'm a cyclist and we were actually meant to be in sardinia right now on a beautiful cycling trip which would have been amazing but I think all of that just becomes, whilst, you know, fun and exciting and we do look forward to that in the future, I think uh, all of that really is just not as important as um, health and love and family. And I'm just so lucky that, you know, during these COVID times, um, you know, that I have, you know, a great family and that we all get along really well and our house and our life and our space all functions really beautifully and everyone's happy and And it's all working well together. And I think that there's nothing more important. What book are you reading? I'm reading The American Wife, actually, which is uh, Curtis Sittenfeld's, uh, one of Curtis Sittenfeld's novels. She wrote one called, uh, her latest book is called Rodham. And it's about Hillary Clinton. It's about like a sliding doors moment. If, If she hadn't married Bill, what would have happened? And uh, this one that I'm reading now is her previous book um, because I really enjoyed Rodham so much. Uh, And it's loosely, very, very loosely based on um, the First Lady, Laura Bush, 
um, and her meeting uh, George Bush. Anyway, it's just fantastic the way she takes kind of real life events, but it's uh, fiction. It's great. Wow. Do you listen to podcasts? I do from time to time. Yeah. What's What's some of your favourites? I quite like that um, Looks 3 Chats 10 because actually it gives me some, it, it, they're very good with uh, reviews of books and films and TV shows and they're kind of fun to listen to. And actually I think that's where I got the recommendation for Rodham. Yeah, okay. But funny story about that was I kind of got the recommendation but forgot about it and didn't take great note of detail. But then I bought the book on my Kindle, started reading it and I forgot or I didn't even know that it was fiction. So I thought I was reading nonfiction about Hilary Rodham. <laughs> and because the first part of her life is pretty much true to her life, that she went to uni, she met Bill, they dated. And then, um, and, um, and then she, in the book, you know, she leaves, she leaves him and starts her own life and the story goes on. I won't spoil it for anyone that wants to read it. And I keep thinking, hold on, Chelsea's about 30, in her 30s. Hold on, she's got to have had the baby soon and what's going on? And then it dawned on me that I was such an idiot that it actually was the sliding doors moment. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, Tanya, it's been so wonderful to chat through all of these tricky kind of ethical things that have to do with fundraising online. You know, it's something that so many people engage in and often do have questions, but don't really understand the mechanics of how, how it all works and how decisions are made. So I want to thank you for, for sharing your experience and your knowledge and your perspective on this. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.